We love running. It's something that we've done all our lives and a great way for when we feel stressed or feel tense or feel a little down, going out for a run, we find, can really replenish our soul. Yeah, when we travel, we that's what we end up doing. We end up, first thing we get off a plane or a car or whatever, always want to go for a run like a pair of dogs. Just makes us feel good. Releases chemicals in our brain. Anyway, back a few years ago, a friend gave us a pair of shoes, said these shoes are going to change your life, lads. And they have done. They're barefoot shoes. They're called Vivo Barefoot. We've worn nothing but them for the last six years. And I found them to be wonderful. They really have enhanced my foot strength. And subsequent research has shown that by wearing Vivo Barefoot shoes over in a matter of months, you'll increase your foot strength by 60%. The muscles in it actually build. There's a wide toe box so you can spread your, your toes out, which will encourage more grip and you're less likely to develop um, bunions. And they have minimal soles. So that means two male soles. So super, super low. And which means that you've got, it really helps with your alignment. You know, if you think about it, your feet are the foundation of your body. Your feet, your knees sit on top of that, then your hips, then your spine, and then your head. So it all starts with your foundation with your feet. So when your feet are flat on the ground, it really, really helps. I've certainly found in myself, my feet are stronger. My alignment is better. I used to get pains in my knees from yoga, from doing the lotus position. I don't get them anymore. Anecdotal, I know. But, uh... We, we are absolute believers in them. They're a B Corp company. They're all about sustainability and doing their best. And we've partnered with them to give you a 15% discount. So if you're interested in trying Barefoot Shoes this year, we'd highly recommend you try in Vivo. If you one, use the code HAPPYPAIR15 at checkout. One really cool part is that there's no risk. They're often a 100-day return policy. So you can order them, avail your 15% discount, and then 100 days later go, nah, not for me, and return them. No questions asked. So. And they have full range for kids, for adults, for going to the office for, we wear the hiking boots on the farm all the time. They're great. They're like worker boots and we run in them. We ran 50 kilometers there in their trail running shoes there a few months ago. And uh, yeah, they're great anyway. So happy pair 15 is the code to use at checkout. If you ever want to check them out, vivobarefoot.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good day and welcome to Happy Pair Podcast where we explore health, happiness, community, meaning, significance and really how to just have more joy in this world and how to have possibly a little bit more awareness. I'm Stephen Flynn. And I'm David Flynn and we've been eating plant-based for the last 20 years and started a business to create a happier world, a vegetable shop. And it's gone on an adventure over the last 20 years where it's expanded into so many different ways and wonderful things. And in this podcast, we talk to experts from around the world that really enlighten us on many different topics. Hello, and I'm Sarah Fawcett and this Ralph Craston Fawcett, who has just woken up. <laughs> he is wondering what's his and microphone. And he's like, name? where am I? What's going on? Mom, I was just asleep a moment ago. Mm. He really is. So yeah. I haven't seen you guys in a few weeks. How are you doing? Sarah Fawcett, sure all is well. Yeah. All is great. All is golden. Um, <laughs> Ralph's doing good too. We were in... Um, Lisboa. Lisboa for um, for three weeks. Wow. And uh, it made me thinking, like, so it was me, Ralph and Harold uh, who went. And uh, we had a great old time, but we did have a few moments where, like, different expectations of what the three weeks should be. Is it a holiday? Is it working away? Is it what? What is it? And, like, yeah, I suppose, what is your ideal kind of, like, What's a holiday for you guys? I was, I was talking about this actually with a friend today that a holiday, I'm not good on fancy holidays at all. We went in a fancy holiday a couple of times where, you know, everything's done for you and I find you've got a manufacture adversary because I find I need to go like walk this kind of, this kind of like slightly, this wild animal inside me needs expressing every day. It needs some kind of a challenge, whether it's going for a run or jumping in the sea or swimming or doing something or do yoga. I need to do something and then I can relax. But if it's just comfort, I'm, I'm kind of crap with it. So, so you're it needs not a beach bum? No, I'm crap with it. I need to, I need to have to, I need to go express this 
I don't know what it is. So this, to that, what do you think? I thought the Greek holiday in, what was that lovely island called? Zakynthos. Zakynthos in... Greece? Last year. Yeah, Pel- uh, Pelagonia. It was so lovely in that we, we, like, there was, we were cooking one night. There was, like, Sarah and Harold were there and Dave was there. So we did loads of training. We were, like, living like semi-pro athletes. And then you were kind of hanging out with the kids and the family. And then you had to cook a couple of days. So it felt like there was a lovely balance between work, exercise, play, hanging out, food. It felt like, this is sweet. I think it's finding the right balance because and maybe for us, like our balance is, is everyone's balance is different and our balance is always out of balance. That's kind of the nature of our <laughs> balance. Like we're not good with a flat balance. So I definitely find with my out of balanceness, I definitely need to express this physicalness within me. It needs expressed on a daily basis. And if it doesn't, I'm not very good at relaxing. So I also don't like that feeling of after a holiday, you're you're like scared to go home because you have like completely shut off that life. You know what I mean? You've completely vegged out and only been, you know, holiday version of yourself. I like, I suppose, still kind of tapping at something and achieving something so that when I come mm. home, it just feels like, oh, yeah, I went from like sunny, lovely location to back yeah. home again. I guess it depends about what type of life you're living. Like if if work is something that you enjoy, you're happy to go on a bus yeah. man's holiday. That's an expression, bus person, bus man, bus lady, whatever. It's an expression from the fruit, the fruit shop in Ireland where you'd literally, someone who drives a bus, they go on a bus tour. And same way we're like food people. So we tend to go visit markets and food shops and travel. Or go, it tends to evolve around that. So do you prefer city or beach? Oh, whatever. I don't mind. I don't mind. Like at this stage, and maybe, maybe it's, as I've got older, I've got much less into, it's less important of where I go and more my mindset of what I'm and the experience and who I'm there with. Yeah. It's always down to who you're there with. Now that I have Ralph, I mean, we were talking about this earlier. It's like, uh, just simple and don't oh, relocate. Yeah. We went from Lisbon to Porto, uh, which was a lovely idea. And then it was just like, oh, him getting used to a new location. A baby, just, yeah, yeah, baby makes it. Oh, hard. holidays are just, yeah, it's it's quite different. It's more just a change of environment. Yeah, when which kids. is nice, you yeah, know, yeah. but you don't want to change the environment too much. Like. And maybe this leads us into today's podcast because I guess you've got to mourn the previous holidays you used to go on. <laughs> there is an aspect of grieving yeah. the person that you used to be and what holidays were. And now there's the accepting of holidays might not be holidays They're at different. all for a while. Totally. Yeah. And I think this is a topic that as a society typically like we live in this ultra positive everything is awesome type society that's trying to bring in their more kind of awareness towards the, the, the less desirable emotions and I think grief is something as a society at least growing up in Ireland it wasn't necessarily talked about or acknowledged or it's something that I'm not really sure at a big macro level I just know me and Steve haven't dealt with we haven't had major bereavements in our lives so we are newcomers to this like we, we've had obviously we've had bereavements of you know granny and then the kind of other dying. losses like where you've been in a relationship and a, and a good friend has died yeah a good friend has died so we've had we've had we haven't had major ones like in a spouse or a child or those type of ones so in a sense we haven't explored grief in in great depth really but also grief everybody handles it differently so yeah yeah, yeah. Um, what you were just saying but there. I think this is something that we're all going to experience throughout our life like it's something that it's a part and there's many different forms of grief as it could be grieving your previous the way you used to go on holidays it could yeah. be a previous relationship it could be a lost a loved one it's, it has many forms And but to your point there just quickly I, I thought it was interesting is that we actually are never taught or we don't really learn how to deal with it. No. Like a baby, we want we want the baby to be laughing all the time. We don't know how to handle it when it cries and well, we're I no think different it's, as adults. I think it's a bit like motherhood or being a parent because you've got all these ideas. Oh yeah, being a parent. Everyone tells you like, oh, it's going to be, you'll be grand, you love it, you love it. And then it comes and you're like, oh my God, it's so much bigger than I could ever have imagined and so much all-consuming. 
And I'd imagine grief is very much like a significant primary grief is just like that. Like you, you don't know what it's like until you're thrown into the depths of it. Yeah. And you, we don't know what tools we actually need for it until we're actually in it. And it's very, yeah, and understanding how to deal with people who are going through grief Absolutely. is a very difficult thing. And, and I think for anyone listening there who's going through re- like serious grief and has just had a recent loss, you know, we send our love, we send our empathy. It's something that, yeah. Is we one of the hallmark. With, I suppose, no. uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So today's guest is Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. She's author of The Grieving Brain. She's a professor. She's a, a professor of psychology and a real expert in the field of grieving and all the many aspects of grieving, particularly how it impacts our brain. So today we cover loads of different topics in terms of grieving about all the aspects of it. And it's not typically just to do with, with a death of a loved one or a partner. This, we all suffer with losses in every day. A loss of a job, a loss of a career, a loss of a partner, a loss of a friendship. And it's how we deal with this and what are the tools that we can take and apply to these situations. And this is a conversation that many think, oh, grief, grief doesn't affect me. It affects everyone. And I think it's such an important thing that we kind of learn a language around grief and learn how to deal with it. Yeah, so, it's one of the hallmarks of the human experience, really. So without further ado, we give you the wonderful Mary Frances O'Connor. Well, well, it's wonderful to chat to you. It really, really is. And it's a topic that we were saying that we we haven't exp- we haven't delved that deeply into and we haven't had, yeah. like we've had pets die and we've had granny die and we've had, yep. you know, a, a, a good friend die. But yeah. it's something that's often skirted under the, the underbelly of society. And it's something that yeah. people don't talk about it unless they're going through it. It's not something that's welcomed and kind of accepted. It's something that's kind of like, oh, you deal with that. You had a, you had a nice kind yeah, of... Yeah, well, in Ireland, um, I know your name's quite Irish and I'm, I'm guessing your family has, you've got yeah. Irish roots. <laughs> but a friend was just telling me the other day that a traditional Irish table will have obviously four legs and then there'll be a joiner on the sides and then a, a middle beam across the middle of the table. And the whole purpose of that was where the coffin would sit and the coffin uh, would be open and people would sit at the table above yeah. the coffin and drink. And that was yeah. part of the wake because in, in Ireland, like, and it's quite different to England anyway, and to, I'm sure to many, it's how many different cultures deal with death, death differently. Yeah. But in Ireland, the coffin will be open. People will go and touch it, it say a little was. thing to it. Yeah. It was, I'm sure it was that one a few months ago and there there was the body open and you were, you know, everyone was walking around having their drinks near and it's kind of, it's very, you see it, you touch it, you say goodbye, yeah. you cry, it's very yeah. public. Whereas in England, it typically happens kind of a few weeks after someone has died and it's quite, yeah. it, there's, there's more clinicalness to this. And I, I wonder, does this affect, affect the grieving process? Mm. Well, I think it depends. I I grew up also with uh, open caskets and wakes. And, you know, as a kid, it was like when you got to see your cousin. So funerals were wonderful, you know. (laughs) And so the, uh, the, the, the expression of grief varies so widely, even though the experience of grief is very universal. And so what we find is actually what matters most is that you feel like you fit with your culture's or your family's way of grieving. Uh, So it doesn't matter how you express it, but more that you feel like you fit with how it gets expressed. Um, And when there's tension between those, that can be quite difficult for a person. But it doesn't seem to matter the how. That, that, that seems hard because it's almost like you've got to fit in with your family. You know, if you learn how to grieve from your parents and within your own, you know, tribe, as it will. You know, the way if you suffer and you deal with it in a different way, then it, it could be extremely difficult because, 
you know, you might be just feel it so much differently than they they do, and some people internalize it, and some people, I, I don't know. You you know all the various ways, but to me, it sounds challenging. You know, it sounds difficult. You know? I think that's the nature. Yeah. Of it, yeah. I mean, the very good news is most of us are remarkably resilient, and so the vast majority of us, although grief is really painful. Uh, Usually we we experience, you know, more acceptance over time for the fact that it's happened and and less yearning over time. But having said that, you know, the, the a wave of grief can really hit you anytime, even years after a loss, right? If you if I come across my mom's handwriting, for example. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It just means in the moment that you're having that awareness, you're having that experience, it doesn't mean you're, you've done anything wrong in your grieving, um, that that's a typical experience. Yeah, you said there at the start that the way we experience grief typically is very, or there's a, there's a universal way typically with how, how we all experience grief. And one thing that I was made aware of is that grief, at least growing up, it was very much something that people were encouraged to get on with. But uh, the more I learn, it's something that you never get over. It's something that you just learn to integrate and to grow around with, that it's something that that lives with you. I think it depends a lot on the 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 relationship, the role that person played in your life. So, you know, if you've lived very far away from a, a relative and and maybe there weren't a, a big part of your who you are, you know, many of us won't experience a lot of grief over that. But losing a spouse, losing a child, we know that these tend to be much more intense experiences, although not for everyone, but um, when you have that intense experience, it is true that you you will have that feeling sort of at times forever. But just as you say, you also learn to reconstruct a life that includes the fact that you're a grieving person, you know, and and often honors the person who's died and and people take great meaning from that usually. Mm, wow, wow. And, and what got you, like, because you know the way when I think of it, you know, and I'm sure it's a question you're asked all the time, because grief, becoming a grief expert, uh, like a real expert in your field in terms of it, like, I don't know if it was something that you've always been curious about, or was it really because, was there a catalyst and it just unfolded? Because I know, like, psychology was your background, but then with your own experience with your mother, did that catalyze your curiosity? And it was your own personal journey of dealing with grief. Was that what kind of catalyzed your own? Yeah, it's certainly. Uh, so my, my mother was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer when I was 13, as you alluded to. And then she died when I was 26. And I was already in graduate school. I was already doing my clinical training. But, um, you know, I, I almost feel like it wasn't so much because I was trying to figure out how I was feeling, but rather I felt really comfortable with people who were grieving. And so given I had this fascination with how does the brain understand, you know, relationships, how does it form that bond? And then how does it understand when that person is gone? Um, it meant that somehow I was able to sit with people who were grieving and talk with them and ask them about their experience and really l listen very carefully to what they were telling me and then sort of map that on to what I was seeing in in brain imaging uh, data and, you know, blood draws and so forth. And so I think that it is certainly the fact that 
having had my own grief, always enables me to sort of check myself. Is this finding make any sense? Is that really what I think is happening? But it also has just made it possible for me to sort of include these people in the research that I'm doing. Fascinating. It really, really is. And in terms of the brain, like, so say, like grief, is it a big stress response? Is it a massive stress response that happens when we go through grief in terms of the brain? Because obviously you can look at it and go, well, this is like a sledgehammer hitting the nervous system to some degree. Or is it, or what, what, what have you found with all your imaging and all your brain research? Well, I think one of the most interesting things about including brain research, neurobiology, is that it has changed, I think, the way we think about grief in, in a sort of specific way. And that is to say, you're absolutely right. Grief is a huge stressor. And we see, you know, blood pressure goes up and cortisol, our stress hormone goes up. And, um, and so in our, in our body, we see that stress happening. Um, but what's so interesting is that when we've done these neuroimaging studies, it's kind of focused us a little bit differently in the following way. So you you have to, in order to think about grief, you first have to think about love and bonding. And so when you fall in love with your baby or you fall in love with the person who's going to become your spouse, that actually gets imprinted on the brain. It gets encoded in the epigenetics, you know, the way the proteins are folded. That bond with this specific person is very deeply encoded. So you form like and physical actual traits in your yes. brain. So your, your physical being changes based on your relationships. It does. That's exactly right. You are physically changed in your brain. So this is literally bonds, so, bonds in your brain, like almost, you know, yep, in a weird way. That's exactly yeah. it. That's exactly it. And and then when that person is gone, there are na- then there are automatically these reactions because that bond is now what is expected to be how you function in the world. You know, it's not it's not just you and me anymore. There's a we, and we is how I function in the world. And so what the way I think that is different is, you know, I think we used to think of grief as sort of something extra added onto your plate. You know, you go to work and you get a bunch of things put on your plate and that's extra stress. And and now you have this, you know, you have an argument with someone and that's another stress. And and we used to think of grief as just sort of one of those added another pieces. serving, another serving of but, stress. But now I think about it a little bit like grief breaks up your plate, and there's a piece of your plate that's missing. Right? It's it's a piece of you, and so you still have to deal with things that get put on your plate. But now you have a little less ability to function because you know the person you turn to for support isn't there, or the person who you come home to and, you know, it's so meaningful to and comforting to be with them. It's like, it's more like your plate has broken and, and you have to deal with the stress with less foundation. Wow. Wow. This like, when I, when I think of it, um, like some of the most kindest, beautiful people that I've met are some of the people that have dealt with the most amount of pain. You know, they've really dealt yeah. with pain and their empathy and compassion and kindness, like whatever way they've used this pain to kind of almost the light shines out of them. And yeah. and I don't know if grief, if your experience with grief is that some people have used this experience to kind of like, obviously you're forced into so much pain. You have to deal with pain. You have to deal with all these type of things. And I guess, have you found that it gives a great capacity for someone to really, you know, become more, even more human, more light in a sense? 
It definitely can. So psychologists call this post-traumatic growth. And many people find that they, you know, they're forced to confront really difficult realities. And, and it can mean that they develop new understandings about the world, like, you know, life is really short and I have to sort of seize today and, you know, make the most of today. Or they discover, wow, people were so good to me in a way I could never have imagined. And it mattered so much that I want to be good to other people this way. There's a variety of ways. Some people feel that, you know, they're they're more connected to the universe or to a, a sort of philosophical understanding of life and death. So people change in a variety of ways, but it can lead to this this uh, this beauty in in sort of the fragility of life. But I will say that other people don't always experience this. Um, and we don't always know what it is that has people go one direction or another. But certainly we know that having support um, while going through that process is very important to taking good... Um, taking away good understandings um, when you come through grief. Yeah, because support, support, when you look at the longest living people on the planet, like support is the, and you look at the basic human, you know, psychological need is for support and connection and that sense of belonging. So I guess anyone, a problem shared is a problem halved. All of these kind of, yes. these very metaphors of, I wonder, is there any specific type of support or is it, or is it the kind of just, having friends and having family and having even a pet, someone that you feel like that can, you know, that can help you carry this burden? Or is there more specific that's relevant to grief? Yeah, the, the, um, you can think of this two ways. So there's research, for example, that if a, a person, um, uh, an older person, say, is very close to their adult children, um, they have good sort of friendships with their adult children, and this person's spouse dies, we know that that support from those adult children is very important and, and helps them to feel less lonely. It helps them to feel less grief sort of overall. But they still have that yearning, that specific, you know, still wishing that that, that partner was there for them. So it's not that it takes grief away, but that it seems to help the, the overall situation. And some of that is being able to talk about what's happened, to express, you know, all the myriad new feelings and thoughts going through your head. And, and, and also it matters that people are able to provide actual support, you know, so um, reminding you to go see your GP or, you know, helping you to go through the closet and, and deal with the clothes of the person or you know, really concrete ways that we can show help to each other, it turns out is very important for grieving people. So some of it is the emotional side, but some of it is is that sort of more instrumental side. Um, and both seem to be very important. But the thing to know is, you know, it can be very difficult to support a person who's grieving. They're experiencing a lot of pain. And I think most of us worry that we'll say the wrong thing or we'll make it worse or, you know, and and I myself, who have talked to hundreds of grieving people, I still say things that I think, oh, that was a terrible thing to say. Why did I say that? <laughs> and so the important thing is just to be very real with them and say, 
look, I, I, I don't even know exactly what to say, but I want you to know that, you know, I'm, I'm open to talking with you about it, to listening to what you have to say, or even I'm here to do things, you know, with you if you sometime can get you out of the house and we can go for a walk or go for a drive, something. Um, so I think it's really just being very honest with them and knowing that it's not our job to cheer them up. That's not a very realistic goal, but just literally to be with them and, and support whatever experience they're having in their grief. Mm-hmm. And almost to be present with them, to kind of just accept, yes. the, accept them as they are rather than try yes. to, rather than help them get on with it. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder how we as a society can kind of, for, for people listening or for, you know, people who haven't experienced these kind of depth and like the tragic loss. Um, how do people or how do we as a society prepare more for grief? Because it's something that inevitably, if we live long enough, it's something we're all going to have to deal with. Yeah. I think some of it is our grief education could be a lot better. So part of the reason that I wrote the book was I recognized we do actually know a lot about grief. We have hundreds and maybe even thousands of studies about grief, but this information doesn't seem to be getting into the hands of people who could actually use it. And so I think our grief education could be a lot better just in general and also among our doctors and nurses and pastors and um, so that we understand a lot of the emotional experiences are, are very unexpected. People, people feel anger or people feel guilt or they feel anxiety or things they're just not expecting to feel with grief, and and most of those are really normal. Most people find it difficult to concentrate, for example, and that doesn't mean you're losing your mind. You know, your your mind is doing a lot of things to try and understand this new reality you're living in. So I think that in general, grief education could be really helpful. I think grieving takes a lot longer than most of us expect. And grieving education, do you mean that in schools or in colleges that we actually talk about, or is it that just... Almost like in culture, social groups culture, or culture, culturally, is that what you mean more? Like just trying to get an idea I, of the application I think of it. Every, yeah, right. I think at every level, I think we can talk about it in schools the way, um, you know, if someone in the class has lost a grandparent or a pet, right? That This is actually a great time to talk about what it feels like and how to be supportive. Um we are getting better online information so that someone who is grieving can find actual information that's, you know, scientifically supported instead of sort of people's ideas about how things should work. Um, But honestly, our education of our caring professionals has often not included grief education. So um, psychologists don't usually receive any training in grief, which seems shocking, but is true. Our psychiatrists don't receive any training. And this, I think I'm starting to see a shift. I think we're hitting a, a turning point where we're starting to see that, you know, your your GP does need to understand how long grief lasts and what are its physical implications. And, you know, your, 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 um, your, your school teacher needs to understand and so forth. So hopefully this is, uh, hopefully we're on the way to a better understanding. Yeah. And, and like, uh, like I want, can I just ask, I, what, just one that was straight there. You, you kind of mentioned like, how long does grief last? I imagine that's a totally subjective question. Yeah. That it's, there's no one answer, but is it something that 
it lasts forever. Is that really it? It, it just changes. Well, I like to make this distinction between grief and grieving because yeah. I think that's really helpful. So as I said before, you know, you will feel grief. You'll have a wave of grief. You know, at the holidays, you may find yourself in tears when you open, you know, these ornaments that you've had since since your mom was there. But that's not the same as grieving. So grieving is the way that grief changes over time. And typically people have less intense waves of grief, less frequent waves of grief, and they find a way to have both, you know, really positive memories. They can laugh about things that the person did and they can remember really beautiful moments with that person, but they can also feel very sad and, and uh, you know, maybe maybe uh, share that sadness with other people and their life isn't just full about grief but other things as well so you can have you know moments where you're you're thinking about the person who's died and then other moments when you're playing with your grandchildren and you're totally immersed in you know that ex that aspect of life you feel there are times you feel creative or there are times you feel um like feeling like being silly or, you know, so it's more about having the wide range of feelings. And grief is one of those, which will always be there. But because grieving means there's change over time, you'll get to a point where grief is not the most central thing in your life. Mm. There was that, what was that Pixar movie called? You know, the one? Um, Inside Out. Is that Inside one? Out. That one there where yes. it was, where it was joy and then there was sadness and, and, like yeah. joy was obviously taught and, and society very much our cult, current culture is everything is yeah. awesome like it's very much replicated by joy and that movie just hit it so well that it was only yeah. joy could only experienced and sadness was very much a part of every joyful experience yes. and they're both part of it and I guess maybe this is part of within our current society we don't deal with death. Death is not something yeah. that we, re you know, we like beauty and youth is is just emulated and it's put on center Even stage. Even when we do talks, we always say everyone's going to die and everyone kind of giggles and it's they like they go, "Oh, no. you're so pessimistic." Right. It's like that isn't pessimism. Like we're all going to die. That's like gravity. Like you jump out the window, you're going to fall down. Like yeah, and it's like death. We're all going to deal with death. Like the more like yeah, and I love that Steve Jobs quote where he says that like you know I look in the mirror and like you know where he says with the more we can make death part of our daily life, the more we're going to be better at living because we're not going to yeah. think that it goes on forever. And that's it. And I wonder as part of the grieving why we're not so skilled in terms of grief, in terms of the toolkit, in terms of the language, in terms of the emotions, is because as a society we don't. You know, death is not part of our daily lives. We brush it under the mark and go, no, I'm always going to be 21. I'm always yeah. going to look good. I can keep getting my face done and whatever, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. Sorry, Ranto. That's right. <laughs> and I think we forget that there are, you know, there are, there are benefits that come along with, just as you say, reflecting on the the short nature of our life and the uh, the fact that we have each other right now. Well, so here's an example. Both of my parents are deceased, but at Christmas time, we go to see my partner's parents. And I just love it because, you know, sometimes you hear the same story over and over again, or they do, you know, strange things and you're staying with them and you think, oh, do we have to, get, do, we have to do this? But at the same time, for me, it's such a sweet experience because I know it's not forever. And I know that sort of deep in my bones. And so it makes, you know, I just don't care if they tell me the same story again. I just go along with it as I've ever heard it the first time, you know. 
And and I think there's a way in which, just as you say, by understanding that death is real, but that death is, it limits this gift we have of life. It makes the gift more precious. Mm. And we're reminded every day, like you look in nature, like in Ireland, certainly there's four seasons and you see every yes. year, you see all the leaves fall down, you see them all die in the ground. You see, you see this process and winter is very contracted in Ireland and then summer yes. is full of life and joy. And it's very eminent on a daily basis, on a, on a yearly basis. But yet, yeah. yet, you know, it's maybe it's just the human prerogative that we kind of go, well, that's painful. Can we not have summer forever, please. Yeah, please, I don't, don't want to deal yeah. with that pain. Yet the pain kind of almost cracks us open to become and gives yes. us this opportunity for growth. And it's painful. Like yes. like when I, I got divorced and it was very painful, yeah. you know. But yeah, yeah, looking back, I go like it's been a wonderful gift in terms of an opportunity to yeah. growth and deal with pain and all that type of stuff. So I I totally agree. And And even to just understand other people who've gone through pain, you know. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's the... Hum- d- d- does grieving get easier with age? As a question. That's just a question. Or is that very case specific? I'm sure it is. Well, that, it's a good question. So we do see that people who are younger are sometimes... It's more challenging to deal with grief, partly because they don't know as much about themselves, you know? So I don't know as well what, what's going to comfort me or how to wrap my head around something. When you've had some experiences of grief, um, then then later if it happens, you can think, oh, I recognize this. You know, this is awful, but I know I won't feel this way forever. And and, and it will get better, as awful as it feels right now. Um, on the flip side, people who are older tend to have a lot more losses, right? Because their siblings die or their, their partner or their friends um, they have to deal with sort of just the the sheer quantity of loss is a bit different. And I think that can be very difficult for people. Um, for many of us, our social circle shrinks as we age. Um, it also deepens, right? So we tend to have fewer friendships, but very close friendships as we age. But then if you lose one of those people, it's sort of a much bigger proportion, right, of, yeah, yeah. of your support. So I think there are sort of, as you say, there are, um, there's reasons it's easier and reasons that they're, that it's harder. They're different in, I think grief is different in different phases of your life. Okay. So grief is 100% inevitable. It's inevitable that like we deal with micro, uh, you know, grieves on a daily basis because you want an ice cream, you don't get an ice cream, you know, you, you get fired from your job, you break up with a relationship, you know, we deal with. And and some of them can be more major, you know, I'm, I'm not undermining yeah. things, but um, like grief is just inevitable. It's absolutely inevitable. Yeah. So, so what are some of the tools like you, you have been in this yeah. field for a long time yeah. and you're right up the top of it. And like, what would the tools which you would go, okay, well, here's 10 tools, which, you know, can help people because, because some things might suit some people and they might be completely lunacy for another person. So what would yeah. be kind of five tools or 10 tools which you go, these are good things to be to kind of be aware of to deal with pain and grief. I think the first thing that you said is exactly right, that we need a big toolkit of ways to cope with grief, right? And it's not really that any one of those tools is going to be better or worse than the other, but rather, are you using it at the time when it's appropriate? And is it helping you in the short term and the long term? So for example, denial has a really bad reputation. <laughs> so, so, and yet there are moments, you know, so if I go to, 
um, if I go to a, a football match, my, my child is playing in a football match, I may think to myself, you know what, for the next, for however long, I'm just going to pretend nothing bad has happened. I'm going to totally focus on supporting my child and I'm going to yell and scream and, you know, be as happy as I can. That is a form of denial, but of course, it's a totally appropriate in that moment. And so it's one of the tools that you can use to cope with feelings. You know, I'm just going to set this aside right now. But you can see how if you use that every single day, that in the long term, you're not really building up any other skills um, to deal with feeling grief. And so that's what I mean about sort of, is it helping in the short term and is it helping in the long term? And so in the longer term, I think about things like learning to accept the feelings, even really painful feelings, without avoiding them. It, you know, when a wave of grief comes over you, I sometimes describe it as it's a bit like it's a bit like showers in the summertime. You know, uh, I'm sure this is true in parts of, of Ireland where sometimes you get these afternoon showers, you know, during during the summer. We'd load them today. Frequently. Yeah, yeah. So this, this, you know, and, and it's annoying, right? You were going to have a picnic or you were going to be at the beach or, but there's no point in, in getting worked up about it. It just is. There is going to be rain and then it is going to go away. And so trying to sort of accept your feelings in that way. I am going to dissolve into a puddle of tears and I am going to also stop crying, you know, later on. And so... That kind of acceptance um, of that really painful aspect can help you to move through and then be in the present moment again on the other side, um, sort of like jumping into a puddle, but also being able to jump out of it again. So that's a very different kind of skill. Um, and then I would say another one is dealing with a particular kind of thought that comes along with grief. And I call these the would have, should have, could have thoughts, right? So this is what if, you know, I should have gotten them to the hospital sooner or the doc if only the doctor would have run this other test or if only they could have known, you know, you, you see what I'm saying is an infinite number of stories that we can tell ourselves and getting stuck in these thoughts that just go round and round and round there's very little benefit to these thoughts, even though they're totally natural. And, and most of us have them, especially early on in grief. But there's no answer to these questions. And so that's why they have very little benefit. You know, the end of each of those stories that you make up is, and then my loved one would have lived. Yeah, yeah. It comes with but almost like reality, beating yourself up like this. Yeah, the reality is that they didn't live. And so it's more about accepting the painful reality so that you can live in reality. And and in reality, there is so much opportunity. So yes, there is pain and suffering often in, in the present moment, but that's also the only place where, you know, you get to see puppies playing in the park or you see you know, the the barista gives you this beautiful smile for no apparent reason. And if you're stuck in these thoughts in your head, you won't even notice, right? You won't even get the warmth from that smile. So I think learning to recognize, ah, I'm having the would have, should have, could have. And I have to find a way to 
get myself out of that being stuck. You know, that may be going for a walk or going for a run, or it may be I need to call my sister, you know, and and just chat about something. Finding ways to pull yourself out of unhelpful thoughts, recognize them, and then pull yourself out. So those are a few things that I think and people it, can. And is learn. it almost, sorry for cutting you off there? Is it is it almost the same way that like so so if grief is a massive stressor, so a massive stressor, yeah. and you know if someone who's kind of gone well, okay, I, the stress in my mind, like when I think of myself, how I deal with stress, I move yeah. like I run, I jump in the sea, yeah. I do y- yoga or when it's anything to move because it, yeah. it physically manifests in my body, and when I move, it just shifts it. You know, I yeah. I, I I go talk to someone you know I probably yeah. uh, I journal I do these type of things so yeah. is it the same kind of like same kind of practices which people deal with stress and how they manage I have a bath a bath is good it slows me down yeah. I meditate I sit with the cats I sit with the cat in my yeah. lap and I stroke the cat and, and it slows me yeah. down because the cat's calmer than me um, like <laughs> is this the kind of things like the things the skills that people will have lots of skills that can also help them with grieving is are, do, do these still apply really they really do, because just like that movie you were talking about, all intense emotions, we have to learn how to regulate them, whether that's anger or grief, right? And so other ways that you've learned to cope with stressful things uh, will probably apply here if you think about it. Um, there's there's the difference of you also have to sort of understand. Um, so there there's two types of coping that you have to do when you're bereaved. One is coping with the actual grief and the death of the person, but the other is coping with restoring your life, right? And so this can be, you know, if you've gotten divorced, how are you going to go out with your couple friends, right? Because you've always gone out with your spouse. And so what's that going to be like now? And many people will sort of try to avoid situations that remind them but then it's harder to restore your life because your life includes all of these things. So I think thinking of those as sort of two different things you have to cope with, with the grief itself, with the loss itself, and then also with what is life going to look like now? I was going to retire with this person. What the heck is retirement going to look like with my spouse has died? So I think separating those as two different kinds of stressors can be helpful. Yeah, because I'd imagine on the, like on the practical kind of one that, you know, if you always have meals together, like if you've got to have meals yeah. by yourself and it's like, well, now I'm cooking for one. Like, I, yeah. I don't want to cook for one. I'm just going to eat cereal or I'm just going <laughs> to yeah. eat toast or I'm just going to eat chocolate yeah. bars. And then right. if you have bad food habits, then maybe you don't want to move. And, that, and then it can form this vicious cycle. So I can totally, yeah. you know, I think that that bit must be so challenging to deal with the yeah. clothes in the closet. And, you know, all those things. Well, that, one, one question yeah. that comes springing straight to my mind is that if when someone is grieving their brain, when, when you form these attachment bonds, your brain actually creates similar bonds, physical bonds. And then when you're going yeah. through grieving, these bonds are still intact. After yes. you've gone through grieving and now you're just occasionally experiencing grief, have those bonds somewhat changed? Or are they still there? So is it actually that you're learning to live around them or do they kind of reconfigure? It's a great question. And I'll be perfectly honest. Uh, I can tell you from a brain perspective, we don't have all the answers yet. Um, it's still pretty early in our understanding the neurobiology of grief, but we have some indications. So part of it is you have to remember, we think of it as the brain, but there's actually a bunch of different systems going on up there. So for example, people will say, I don't want the pain to go away because I don't want to forget this person. Well, it turns out that your memory system is completely separate from those emotions. You're not going to forget this person. You're never going to forget this person. 
uh, as long as your brain is healthy, you will always be able to remember the, the, the feeling of being loved by them and loving them. And you'll always be able to, you know, many, many people still talk to their loved ones after they've died, right? Because they're in your brain. They're physically there. You can call them up and ask them, what advice would you give me in this situation? And you often know exactly what they would tell you, right? So there's there's the memory system, which is distinct from this other sort of this yearning. We, we sometimes call it the reward network. It turns out that Early on, after a loved one has died, well, let me put it this way, in a in a relationship when both people are alive, it makes sense that we have yearning, right? So if you go on a trip, you yearn for that person. It, it motivates you all to come back together again, to reunite. And that works incredibly well when everyone is alive because it's it maintains those bonds, those attachment bonds. But when a loved one dies, the brain is still trying to use that solution for a while. It says, well, they're not here. Just go get them. And and it's not, you know, it's not the brightest part of our brain in the sense that it hasn't updated yet, right? So we keep picking up the phone to call them and then remembering that we can't do that anymore because the brain takes a while to update. So one of the things that we think is changing is you can still have all these warm and wonderful memories but you can also change the fact that you no longer expect them. You can predict that they are going to be absent rather than present, right? When you wake up in the morning, eventually your brain doesn't expect them to be lying next to you in bed. Or if you hear the garage at five o'clock in the afternoon, you don't expect them to walk through the door. So those are sort of different systems and 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 your brain is learning, oh, this is the new reality while still maintaining all that love and care that you have for that person. Jeez, it really just sounds like there's so much pain and grief. You can understand why people might be afraid to really love. Yeah. Like, like you really yeah. can because when you hear, yeah. oh my God, the risk and the price you've got to pay for, if you're fortunate enough to be married for and have a really beautiful relationship for decades. And if one yeah. of you dies sooner than the other, that pain must be such a, you know, a, it's, yeah. it's the price. But imagine, but imagine the person who never loved, who oh. had to live all those years without the, without a loving partner. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds worse. I guess and the even, cost this, of entry. even this morning I was on the beach with Linda and Daddy and they've been, you know, together for a number of years. And, um, I was just asking and they kind of mentioned that if one of us dies before the other one, they're going to live their life in their honour, almost like they're not going yeah. to sit and wallow and sit and like, That's obviously it. they want to feel it, but at the same time, they want to live for each other. And they've had that conversation, which yeah. I thought I, I don't, beautiful. to me, that seemed beautiful and seemed like, wow, that's a, that's a very considered approach to the acknowledgement that there is going to be a day that one of us will die and that's that the it. other will have to continue, carry the torch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and is that something that you, like, it, you know, almost... In your own life or in people who you care about that you go, well, it's good in your relationship to discuss what would happen if one of you did die early or whatever. Like, I know it sounds like you're getting your affairs in order, but to even have those conversations and acknowledge that, hey, one of us could die before the other one. I know it sounds awful, but is this something it's that is part of the work that you death do? into the relationship? Is that something that... It sounds that... awful now, but... It sounds awful and it's also easier when the reality is happening, if you've already talked about it. 
So the reality is you will have to face healthcare decisions. You will have to face, you know, uh, maybe a sudden loss and thinking, oh my God, I don't know what he would have wanted, right? And so I think having those conversations, it can really deepen the relationship um, even while you are alive. Now, that doesn't make it easy and it doesn't mean you have to talk about it all the time, but I think acknowledging things will not always be as good as they are at this moment. Is there anything that we could do right now that would help us be a little more prepared for that, whether that's sort of financial planning or end-of-life care decisions that we should really be talking about. And I think bringing humor to this, I mean, the Irish are brilliant for this, right? Bringing humor for this is is a wonderful way to do it. I teach a, a psychology of death and loss course, and in the course, the students have to talk with their parents about what their parents want at the end of their life. And it's such a good it's such a good experience because the students, they have me as a scapegoat, right? They can say, well, I have to do this for a class assignment. But it also means that they have these wonderful conversations. But we talk a lot in advance about how will you do this? You know, you don't just spring this on them when they haven't had their coffee in the morning. Or <laughs> or you bring in the humor of it, of, you know, this isn't because I want to, you know, this isn't because I'm looking to get the car. But I really want to talk about what are we going to do, you know, with do you have a will and and so forth. So I think talking about it in all these ways, it's just the reality. And the more that we shirk away from it, the bigger it becomes, the scarier it becomes. And by actually talking about it, it makes it somewhat more manageable. You know, I asked my father once if he was if he was afraid, this was when he was terminally ill, I asked him if he was afraid about dying. And he, he looked at me. He is, he is the gr- grandson of an Irishman. He looked at me and he said, well, I know where I'm going. And we both just bust out laughing. And I tell you, you know, now I think on that and it's so sweet to me. Wow. It, is it a, a, th- a thought which came to me there is that like, so... Do other animals grieve? Like, are we the only mammals that grieve? Because it almost seems like it's, it's there's so much pain in these deep-seated relationships, like the inevitability. Like, it's very unlikely that a couple are going to die in the same day that are, you know, in a long-term relationship with another or whatever. You know, and, and I just wonder, are we the only species that suffer this deep pain? Do others, Do other animals just shake it off and then move on and find another mate? Or how does it work? It's a great question. And, you know, of course, it's very hard to give a questionnaire to an animal about how yeah, they're feeling. <laughs> but <laughs> well, well, it's more it's more implying that is it an evolutionary like is it what is yeah. the purpose of it? I guess that's the kind of curiosity yeah. behind it. So I think what, what we realize is that grief is probably there because we have these attachment bonds. So there are loads of animals who have attachment bonds, right? So we actually study in neuroscience, we study these little voles, they're called. So they're these little rodents that run around in North America. And one of the things that's very unusual about them is there's a there's a prairie vole and they bond for life. So once they've chosen this other vole, this other one and only, they prefer to spend time with that vole than any other vole they come across. And so we can we can see what happens then when what happens when they're separated and what's their stress response like and how do they behave? Do they show depressive like um, uh, behaviors and anxiety like behaviors? And it turns out that they do. So 
the the animal researchers don't call it grief. They call it loss or they call it, you know, depressive like behaviors. But essentially, if you are able to have bonds, then you are probably experiencing grief at some level. I don't know that they have a, you know, really well worked out theological view of death, but I think that they experience that pain. And we see it also, especially in the large mammals where um, where you have to raise the young for a long time. So these social attachments are maintained for a long time, like elephants and whales, uh, chimps. We see behavior in them that looks very, very much like human grief. It's fascinating. To, to me, it seems yeah. like like certain tools that at least I'm going to learn from today is one, to talk more about death and acknowledge it yeah. and to not brush it under the table and B, yeah. sometimes like even the thought of having that conversation with my parents, like it makes me feel vulnerable and sad yes. and it's like, oh my yes. God. But at the same time, having that conversation with my parents, I imagine is a beautiful opportunity to share these raw emotions and be able to yeah. tell my parents how important they are to me and how the thought yes. of it just frightens me. Yeah. That way. So, so I think that's something that I will, is a huge learning for today is like actually acknowledge death and welcome death to yeah. my daily life because it's only with bringing death to the party that suddenly yeah. the party there's acknowledgement that the moments are passing yeah you know you can use <clears throat> me as a scapegoat as well i was doing this podcast right yeah, yeah, i mean brilliant. this is why i wrote the yeah. book because people can say well i was reading this book you know you're and and that opens a conversation so you have to be brave it does take bravery but it leads to such warmth and love because really it's about love that's the reason you're having the conversation so definitely use me as a scapegoat right and and even i remember just even this conversation it reminds me of i remember being um early 30s we must have been 31 me and uh, my ex-wife and we had our daughters on the beach and we were sitting there and it was we were on holidays and i remember watching a whole series of like 18 and 19 year olds like really like good looking people they were just finished school and they were on holidays and like and they were just having so much fun. And I wanted to go up and say to him, this is going to pass. This, this, like, this is, this is magic what you've got now. And you might think this is going to last forever. And, and you know the way you could just acknowledge that it was a death of a certain phase of my life that was like, okay, yeah. I'm into a different phase. And I wanted to yeah. share with them that, hey, you know, life, time passes and yeah. don't take it for granted because what you have in this moment is, it's like a dream. You will look back at this and go, that was. I wonder the irony of that moment was were you actually yes. saying that for yourself? Because that moment uh, that you oh, were it was having my there, own death. It was my own death of this in my but, own but, life. But also your acknowledgement of that moment with you there and your ex-wife and the kids there. That, yes. that like I think that's that's when you're truly living. It's not looking at others well, and going, their moment will pass. It's looking at your own life and going, this moment will pass. Because you were in a moment that would pass as well. Oh, of course. You were in a moment with your children when they were young, you know, and and that moment will also pass. And so I think the amazing thing is that each of us is in a moment at any given moment. Mm. And so being a, that's that's the part that really gives us the capacity to to endure all of this because you're right. You can look at that and remember eighteen and 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 have all those fond memories. And you look at it from the moment you're in right now and you think, wow, this is like the best part of my life. Because when you're 60, you'll look at that moment, you know? Mm. So I think, and, and at 60, you're having a moment, right? <laughs> at 60, you're having a moment, yeah. which is different. 
So I think that really is exactly the the key to enjoying the present moment, knowing that it isn't the same as the moments you've had before. And there's grief over that. And there's also the present moment. Wow. So it really is making peace with death, bringing, yeah. making a space at your table for death and acknowledging that it's part of this and human not experience. not in a morbid kind of no, sad no, not type of thing, but no. it's more kind No, of... the more that it's part of your daily life, the more that when grief, when these, uh, these, these big life-changing bereavements happen, maybe you might have been preparing your whole life without having noticed rather than yeah. pretending that it's never going to happen. Yeah, wow. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, me as well. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So your book is The Grieving and Brain. I think it's it's fascinating, the concept of looking at grief through your brain. My word. It's been a passion for me. It's not the most obvious way to look at grief. But, but you know, neuroscience is the conversation of our times. So really, if if talking about the neuroscience of grief is yet another way to get us to talk about it, then that's really what matters. Not because neuroscience is the best way, but because we have to keep talking. What did it feel like for you? This is what it feels like to me. Um, and now people can use you as a scapegoat because they can say, I was listening to this podcast. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, to catalyze conversations around it. Great. Well, yeah. thanks so much for your work and thanks so much for your time. We've really, really enjoyed yeah, this. Loved so. it. Loved it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Wonderful to talk with both of you. And thank you for bringing this conversation to people. Yeah. Well, thank you. Mary Francis, you're great. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, Mary Francis.